Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next special episode of this Photokina Week for Candid FM. Uh, today is all about Fuji, and uh, it's been a very, very exciting day. Yeah, well, my time has come. It's it's Fuji Day. I'm excited. This is like what I've been waiting for all week to, to talk about. I'm jealous of you because you actually got to see the new GFX in person. Yes, I did. Um, but you said you said you didn't actually get to like work with it or, or use there it. There right? was a glass behind the camera and myself, so ah. uh, I couldn't get my dirty hands all over it as I planned, sadly. Ah. But it was uh, still very nice to see it in person because they had several uh, several units. I, I think there were mock-ups. I don't think they were real production cameras. Yeah. But you get to see how it looks, how it works from every angle. So it was it was very nice. And we'll talk, of course, a lot more about that camera a little bit later in the episode. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to the GFX. <laughs> yeah. But first, we should actually talk about the one that you did get to use. <laughs> exactly, which is the new X-T2. Uh, and this is sort of like the update to the X-T1 that includes all of the nice new features of the X-Pro2 from a few months ago. Yeah but now with a fancy electronic viewfinder to sort of complete the package. This is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Marius, would it be fair to say that the X-T2 is more for the people who enjoy shooting a DSLR? I'm going to... Whereas the X-Pro2 is more rangefinder style for people who like to take it a bit slower, maybe? I Yeah, I'd even take it a step further. I would say that uh, the X-T2 is the better camera for most people who are considering entering into the Fuji system. Uh, the, the X-Pro2 is a very, uh, it is a flagship technologically, but it's a bit of a niche camera in terms of the, I guess the ergonomics of it, because most people are, are going to be more familiar with the layout of uh, pretty much everything on the X-T2. It just, it feels more familiar unless you came up using rangefinder style cameras, in which case, yeah. But I think that for most people, it's the, so the X-T2 was the flagship they were waiting for, essentially. And it is clearly a flagship because I I spent a, quite a few minutes playing with it, both yesterday and today. And I came away very impressed with it. We have a very special treat for this week's episode, which is that I actually had an opportunity to talk with uh, Peter Fallen, a Fuji employee who was there at the booth, and he he was willing to talk to us on the record. So I got to record an interview with him where he goes uh, in-depth on the new features of the X-T2 and especially what's different uh, from the X-T1 to the X-T2, what has changed, what has improved, and uh, who would benefit most from these changes. So... All in all, I think it was a very interesting conversation, and I'd like to play it for you guys now. How does that sound? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay, so we're here at the Fuji stand with Peter Fallen, who's going to tell us a little bit more about the X-T2, so you guys can know what's special about it, and especially what changes from the X-T1 to the X-T2. So Perfect. All yours, Peter. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Nice, for having me here, and let's go into details. Um, as okay. most of you know, the X-Pro2 came out more beginning of the year and the big step from the X-T1 to the X-Pro2, besides the viewfinder system, was the larger sensor, which is now a 24 megapixel X-Trans 3, together with a much more powerful processor. This means the X-Pro2, X-T2 are four times more powerful in processing terms compared to the X-T1. Yes. And this gives us a lot of new options that we did not have before. Talking now specifically about X-T2, we're having the X-Pro2 sensor processor uh, in the body of the X-T1, mm -hmm. which was slightly modified to be able to shoot really 4K video non-stop, meaning we have a little bit larger body size in order for additional cooling inside. Nice. So the camera is not overheating. So yes, because that's a very common problem with 
these types of cameras. Exactly, because the body is so small. Okay. If you check out our cut-up models on the other side of the booth, you see every single cubic millimeter is filled with something. Nice. And then no more cooling and the camera just shuts off. So this problem is solved because we were growing two millimeters, uh, let's say, uh, in, in Y direction and uh, two millimeters in, in set. And like this, you have a little bit more volume. In addition, um, there are just small uh, details like here, the, the really lovely dials that we know from the past for shutter speed or ISO. Yes. We're, we're growing a teensy winsy, so they're just nicer to touch. And this locking mechanism is now really just pressing for a locking, uh, not pressing again for unlocking. Mm -hmm. So this is really quite handy. Otherwise, here the levers for uh, single shoots, continuous low, continuous high bracketing and all that stayed. Small difference here also for the video guys. You have now here the one new position where you shoot video yes. and not using any function button anymore to start, but just the, the, the shutter release. So like this, you, you start video, stop video. Here the exposure compensation dial is as we know it from the X-Pro 2, plus minus 3. And then if you go to custom, you can use the front wheel to go plus minus 5 stops. Here we go. Um, as you guys cannot see, but I, I guess there will be some pictures posted later yes, somewhere. Yes, of course, of course. Uh, very important for this camera is the booster grip. It I makes was going to ask you about that, yes. because it's not just a power grip, it also not provides all. some additional functionality. Absolutely, lots of functionality in it added. It's in, first of all, it's, it's having uh, two more batteries inside, which means for 4K video shooting, it's half an hour non-stop video shooting. Nice. But also the normal photographer like you and me just end up with 1,000 up to 1,200 shots. With one, I call it one charge. It's now for me three batteries, makes it a thousand so, pictures. So that's really DSLR light. Exactly, that, that's DSLR style, that's just huge. in terms of power consumption. In addition, uh, if you go here on a the small switch down here, if you go from normal to boost, mm -hmm. you can go in continuous high speed up to 11 frames a second, with thanks to the really f uh, super fast USH2 uh, cards, you shoot really, um, let's say, a burst of 40, 30, 40 frames raw and JPEG, just duck, 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 11 frames a second. But much more than this, um, the, f the frame rate in the viewfinder goes up from 60 to 100 hertz. And this gives you a really, really smooth picture if you just tilt, pan, shift, everything. That's perfect for action, sports, e exactly. that sort of thing, right? Even here, this terrible light on the, on, on the photokina here, we have always this flickering in the lights. It's right. much, much less on the 100 hertz than on the 60. Yes, of course, it can compensate for the Exactly, so if, if, you shoot, if you shoot artificial light, um, also the 100 hertz here is really a cool thing. Interesting. Yes. Uh, otherwise, I mean, the main uh, really total new area we're opening with this camera is the autofocus performance if we're talking about moving objects. Yes. And I'm not talking about your son on the bicycle over the terrace. I'm talking about sports, like now we had photographers from coming back from Rio saying, oh, Peter, I was testing my old big Canon Nikon in parallel with X-T2, and now I have a feeling it's up to the same level. And I mean, what else can you ask for? No, this means that's um, high praise, definitely. Exactly. This means you have just a hit rate in terms of continuous autofocus, which is really, really so high that you can say um, you shoot a burst of an event and you have 20 out of 20 pictures sharpened in focus. That's incredible. I mean, per and personally, I'm not a sports shooter, but what I did just to test it myself was a beach volleyball tournament. Then in half an hour, 869 frames non-stop, 11 frames a second, and just, just sharp, right? toggling through those five uh, auto continuous autofocus modes. 
and we talk about it in a second. And it had something like five or six frames out of out of focus. So th this means you can be really confident that you just get this one single picture in the first try. That's very nice, very nice. And tell me something uh, more about those autofocus modes, exactly. the continuous autofocus. For the first time, well, for the second time, because you guys already did it with the X-Pro2, yes. you can actually configure uh, how you want the camera to behave depending on the situation, exactly. right? Exactly. On the X-Pro2, a little bit, because there you could, as, as always, you could change from manual, con uh, single shot or continuous, yes. and the continuous focus improved quite a lot, but it, you could not program it. Okay. It was just trying to track some kind of movement and stay sharp and in focus, while here, if you go into the main menu, which is also exactly taken from the X-Pro2, so guys shooting the X-Pro2 will be familiar to the structure of the menu where you have everything about image quality in the first chapter, then everything about focus in the second chapter. This is right where we want to go right now. You would go to AFC custom settings. Nice. Now you jump in and now you see one, two, three, four, five plus number six uh, so-called preset modes. Number one would be just a kind of multi-purpose mode. Something is somehow moving, you want to track it. Number two, is the so-called uh, ignore obstacles and continue to track the subject. For I love how descriptive the names are because sometimes it's not easy to yes. know what they do exactly, but this is exactly. absolutely clear. Also, yeah, a little, uh, little pictures included that you get a rough idea what we're talking about. Yes. Just one thing before we go ahead. These are all things you have to practice. I mean, it's not self-explanatory. If you switch it on for the first time, you would not know when to use two or three or four. Of course. This you have to practice. But just to continue here, for example, we have now our lovely model on stage, yes. and now some of my co-workers run between you and the model, and the camera would still stay on the model if you tracked her first. So something running between model or subject and camera, no disturbance anymore. This would be. We're going to test two. that very uh, soon. So. Uh, soon. You should. You should test <laughs> I, all this. I'm sure. Stuff. I'm sure it's going to work great. But no, just please, so you know, please I'm going to test it. Absolutely. <laughs> The next thing is something here, you see a picture of in some motorsport uh, event nice. where you have just fast acceleration, de deceleration, where it just means uh, that this little car comes with 150 miles an hour, really full brakes, a slow turn and then full throttle again, and the camera is able to track this quick change in speed. This would be number three. Number four is something really cool and totally new to me on a, on a mirrorless camera. This is called here, suddenly appearing subject. What you see here is some super G ski downhill event where we all know the last jump before finish line, we are waiting, sooner or later he should come. Right. And you, you check your framing, you focus on the background, on the blue sky, on the cloud in the sky. Suddenly the, the skier comes, woof, so fast, camera can't track it. So now here, the, the zone area is set to front, which means the focus of the camera stays always in front, yes. which means in the moment he suddenly appears, the camera can immediately track the guy. That's extremely clever. And I'm guessing this takes very close collaboration with actual photographers and sports photographers uh, absolutely. to design this feature because this is not something an engineer could figure out exactly. unless he is also a photographer. That is. Exactly. That's exactly the thing that, that's always important in R&D that you really have actual people really shooting this kind of stuff telling you, oh, this is great here, we need still a little bit of tuning, why don't you include this or that? And this That's is why you end up with a menu like this. Huh? Uh, the last thing, you see a lady uh, playing tennis. I always call it, in terms of photography, total chaos. Because okay. you, have, you have movements in all <laughs> Anything directions. Anything can happen. You have movements in all directions. Suddenly no movement, waiting for something. Suddenly running, jumping, whatever. So here, the autofocus, if you look at this third parameter, which is here the speed tracking, 
and this is at high speed here, at full speed, because here the tracking should be extremely fast here, um, while the zone is set to automatic, because you don't know, can be in the middle, can be front, can yes. be back, so that's number five. And then if you personally do some kind of sports, which, which is a little bit of everything, or you want to fine-tune a little bit here, then you go to number six, which is the custom setting, where you can just manually adjust all those three parameters, just as you like it, and then you store it, and you say, that's my number six. That's incredible. That's it. Very, very handy, very clever, very well designed. I can't wait to try it. So. Yeah, please. Um, we have all lenses here. Um, I think you guys did an amazing job. Anything else you want to tell us about the camera? Or? I think for the moment I would say that's it. There, there are small little details here and there, but otherwise any X-T10, X-T1, X-T10 shooter will be familiar immediately. X-Pro2 shooter would know the image quality you can expect from the larger sensor. And maybe one last thing to mention, that really my normal ISO working range is, was always 200 to 64 and now you easily go to 12,800 and even the 25 high is still nice. acceptable nice. in terms nice. of image quality if you want to make, whoops, now we are shooting high speed. <laughs> if you want to make an enlargement 64 or something like this, still okay. Now in terms of the new higher resolution sensor, uh, are you guys noticing better low light performance as well? Yes, absolutely, because you really gain one full stop and it's really fully usable. And the noise has that still exactly. has that nice character that Let the Let me correct you there. Sensor. I always quote, and you can quote me personally, Fuji X cameras have no noise at all. They have digital grain, like from Absolutely. good old days. That's fair. That's fair to say. And the digital grain looks just really nice and pleasing up to 12,800, depending a little bit on your motive. It's a, a foggy landscape. It's anyway not a problem. If you have super fine details in the hair of the model, when you want to make a really large print, you might say, I stop at 8,000 or something. That's a personal choice of the individual photographer. But generally speaking, 6.4, totally no problem. 12.8, totally cool. And so like this, you gain one full f-stops in terms of the same noise performance as you know it from before. That's very impressive. And just to, to, to finish here, I was hoping to get maybe a couple quick sentences about the new lenses, the new uh, weather-resistant lenses that you guys released. I believe it's the new 23 f2, right? Yes, exactly. So this because I'm a 35 millimeter uh, exactly. shooter most of the time, so I'm very excited about that particular lens. Exactly. So it's a nice small form, like an old Leica Summichrome, just exactly sitting nice on X Pro 2, being not too bulky, not too heavy. It's it's fast. It's f2, f2.8, f1.4, depending on which lens you take. We are talking about now 23, 35, and the next year the 50. That's a perfect. That's uh, exactly this try triple. Of lenses. That's yeah. exactly this triple that would go perfectly well with X Pro 2 or XT2, of course. They are small, nice. They are weather sealed. They are fast and autofocus, especially 35, 1.4. You gain one stop. It's a little bit slower. It's not weather sealed. So um, here you have two to choose from. And, they are, and especially the form factor makes it nice because you don't want to have a big bulky lens on an otherwise rather nice camera from the body size. So well, I'm very excited to test all of that. Uh, thank you very much, Peter, for most welcome. being so kind to us. And you guys are doing an incredible job, so keep it up. I'm yeah, really keep excited going. about this. Have system. you already checked out the medium format? I'm going to. Just, yes, you just, should. Just in a few minutes. So yes. Can't wait for that, too. Perfect. So thanks a lot for having us here at the Fuji Kina 2016 and enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you. There you go. I could just see Mario's like checking off all the boxes, <laughs> yep. nodding furiously yep. throughout the yep. whole thing. <laughs> yeah, it was a great, it was a great conversation. It was, it was very nice of him to take, uh, to take the time to speak to me. 
because the the booth was such in, so incredibly busy. Like there were like three rows of people waiting to get their hands on the camera. Wow. And even though they had quite a few of them lying around, uh, they were all still very, very much in demand. So uh, yeah, thanks again to Peter. He was he was great to to talk to. And uh, and he's also a, a great photographer, by the way. If you guys go to his Instagram, which we'll, we'll put a link to in the show notes, he, he happens to be a fantastic photographer too. So I'm very glad I got to meet him. Yeah, no kidding. I'm just thrilled that you finally had an opportunity to try out one of the flagship Fuji bodies because I've been, you know, trying to tempt you guys into trying them for what feels like a long time yeah. now. And, you know, you finally gotten an opportunity to work with uh, essentially the, the camera that I think would be best suited for you if you were ever considering um, switching. And it just so happens that my X-T2 review unit also showed up this week uh, along with the 50 to 140. So I've been uh, I've been playing with it as well. Uh, so we can we can compare notes a little bit, but um, tell us. Do you oh, guys have jackets for your little Fuji club or what? Yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> I bought a third one as well, just you know, in case, Josh. Well, you need one for each hand. I think we've established that with the Leicas before in the show. Yeah. <laughs> Give us your thoughts here, because you you know you you played with it a little bit, and and did did it change your outlook? I think the description you just mentioned is exactly spot on. I think this is. Absolutely the camera that I would buy if I were ever to get into the Fuji X system. Uh, it really is a remarkable a remarkable piece of engineering uh, as a machine, but it's also a fantastic camera because, and this is something that perhaps is unique about Fuji, it is evident from everything about the camera that it was designed by photographers. Yeah. And that makes all the difference in the world, at least in my opinion. I, I When I first got my hands on it, it was instantly very, very familiar, very, very intuitive. I, I knew how to do almost everything. And yes, of course, the, these controls don't change that much from one camera to, to, the, to the other, but there's still a difference. And that getting used to, that small uh, window of time that it takes you to become used to where each feature is in the in new camera, is very very annoying usually. Yeah, I mean that that's what that's what I think is so appealing to people about the Fuji cameras in general is that that initial set, you know, the holy trinity of exposure controls is so obvious and so immediate that you don't have to spend any of that learning curve time grasping the basics, right? Like if you know something about photography and you pick up a Fuji camera, you're fine. And then you can spend additional time learning about the ins and outs of the film simulation modes exactly. and some of the additional bracketing stuff that you can do in this brand new, um, you know, continuous autofocus algorithm, which we'll probably chat a little bit more about. But, the you know, the core experience of just picking it up and being able to take photos in full control, you know, fully manually, uh, that's something that I don't think any manufacturer has has gotten down pat as well as Fuji. Because even though, you know, I mean, we, we're big, big fans of Olympus's ergonomics, uh, but none of their controls are as immediate because again, you get to customize stuff, Yeah. but because you get to customize it, it means that out of the box, it's not as immediate. It's just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a philosophical difference, but I think it works in Fuji's favor. And I think there's one factor that I, I cannot emphasize enough, which is aperture ring on every lens. Yes. Yeah. That to me makes all the difference in the world. Like, it's 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 like night and day. Why? Tell us, like seriously, why? Because I'm not, I'm just not convinced. Well, part of it is because I still have some muscle memory left from when I used to shoot the film with my Canon A1 program, and all the lenses there have aperture rings. 
so that's that's I suppose that's part of it. But part of it is, is I think it's just a more intuitive way to take pictures. I think your left hand should have a task to perform. And if there's no aperture ring on the lens, you become too reliant on your right hand. And at some point that it's just not practical. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. So I think the sooner you train both your hands to each do a job, the better that's going to be for your ergonomics, for your posture when you're shooting. Because if you get into the habit of having your left hand cradling the lens, you're also going to be much more stable and you're going to be able to use uh, longer shutter speeds and still not get, not get uh, blurred motion in your pictures. So everything is important. To me, this feels especially relevant in an age where autofocus technology has has mostly overtaken the use of manual focus in, in so many cases in photography. Like it used to be the case that your left hand would be responsible for racking focus and then that's fine. But nowadays, uh, since most people are shooting with one or another autofocus mode most of the time, their left hand is just kind of sitting there holding the camera, if not for... Uh, something like, you know, Fuji's lens designs where, you know, you're controlling aperture. And I just, I honestly, even the simple fact of how good those dials feel, I prefer them to basic like uh, rotary wheels and things like right. that. And I, I don't really, I feel like there's less control with a smaller wheel, especially if you're trying to move it in concert with shutter speed or something like that. It's It just feels a little more precise when you've got a bigger ring dialing in aperture. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm getting used to shooting with that on Sony World again with the 3514. Right, yeah. And I can't believe I can't believe that everybody every lens doesn't have this feature because they all shoot clearly. But anyway, uh most of the testing that I did with the actual camera that the the while that I that I spent there at the booth it was related to the autofocus, which is one of the main features in the new XT2 you have for the first time. You can configure the way you you want the camera to react to any event that may happen, like a subject walking in front of your, uh, walking into your frame, basically. Yeah. And the way that we tested this was by holding a water bottle really close to the to the plane of focus, to the really close to the camera, and then taking it away. So and seeing how fast the camera could focus on the background and then regain focus on the bottle once you put it back in. Right. And for that, I, I tested the new 35mm f2 lens, which is just a really, really nice lens. I mean, I knew it, I, I was, I went in expecting it to be nice, but it's really nice. Yeah, I love that lens. And it's so compact too for the optical quality that you're getting. Right, absolutely, absolutely. And it took us a while to find the proper autofocus mode to get the camera to track the bottle correctly. But once we did, it was impressive. Like absolutely impressive. I don't think right now, I don't think there's a better autofocus system in a mirrorless camera out there. The Olympus one, the, the one in the new EM1 Mark II might be, and I'm saying might be because I'm not sure, yeah. might be slightly faster, but I feel this one is a lot smarter. And it's also customizable. And if I had to choose, yeah, and if I had to choose, I think I'd choose the Fuji one. So this is all better than the A6300. I know that this is not brand new technology anymore from Sony, but everybody was touting how good that autofocus, uh, how how good that was at, at you know tracking subjects for a mirrorless camera. So this one's better. Uh, that much the, better. Th there's a problem. Sony continues to believe that you should never 
have to worry about the autofocus, that the camera should figure it out by itself. So the A6300 has a very advanced autofocus system, but I'm not sure that you can configure it the same way you can the Fuji, you know? We've, we've seen them starting to do that now with the A99 Mark II, the, the camera that they announced at this, this year's Photokina. That camera does have a configurable autofocus uh, mode, but I'm, I'm not sure. I think the A6300 didn't have it. Yeah, and probably it's not going to show up in a firmware update either. Yeah, probably no. Uh, the thing is, if I have to choose between both cameras right now, you have to keep in mind that they're both going to take extremely similar pictures. Like the quality of the pictures is going to be basically the same. Uh, yes, one has an X-Trans sensor and the other one has a Bayer sensor. So that difference is going to be there. But for everything else, they are very, very similar. Same resolution. Dynamic range is going to be not very different, I would expect. But the actual experience of using it, of using each camera, they couldn't be further apart. And I really prefer the X-T2. Uh, the only problem is that it doesn't make sense for me to buy one because I am a Sony shooter. My main camera is a Sony camera. And the ability to use the same lenses across both cameras would give me an extra bit of convenience that perhaps makes up for the fact that the camera itself is not that compelling when it comes to ergonomics. And it doesn't. it just doesn't have that inspirational factor that the X-T2 has in spades, basically. Yeah. Uh, to me, the, the main takeaway from this new autofocus system is the fact that it's customizable. And it's it's customizable in the way that typically we only see on action-focused DSLRs. Uh, and, and it's funny because I you know you look at the interface and it looks very similar to the way the Canon menu system works, for ex- instance, on the, um, uh, on the 1DX and other cameras like that that are built for sport. They allow you to tune... Uh, very similar things like how quickly does it react to new things coming into the frame how quickly does it follow how you know it's it's interesting that they've um sort of taken that um and and brought it to the mirrorless realm i'm not sure that uh, that anyone else besides sony with this new camera is is offering that level of control and to be to be fair uh canon especially on the newer cameras they actually have additional sliders like there's there's even more customization that you can do Right. Um, but still, I mean, it's 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 a tremendous step forward for mirrorless. And in my very limited testing here with this uh, review unit, uh, I've I've been very impressed. And it is it's fun actually to test it the way that uh, that you were doing, Alvaro, uh, which is just to, to have a sort of uh, fake setup where you're moving something in and out of the frame and just see how the sliders affect the responsivenness. Exactly. And, and it just I, I find that that made it a lot easier for me to understand how to adjust it for different shooting scenarios. Um, and that's good because it means that if you're out in the field and you are anticipating a certain kind of uh, challenge, you kind of you'll know how to uh, preset it so that it behaves more or less the way that you need it to. And then you're just making little tiny adjustments to right. it. Right, and that's something Peter was very careful to emphasize when he was talking to me. He said that that this is not something that is immediately obvious how to use. Like it takes time to figure out what each mode does, and it takes time to learn when you should use each one. So, uh, if you think of it, it's sort of like a game you you get to play where you have to figure out which is the correct answer to the problem you have. Yeah. So once you figure that out, and you you have that. Uh, knowledge becomes second nature to you, then that's that's just perfect. Yeah. But I, I do think there's something to the Sony approach. I mean, I do think uh, some 
at some level you shouldn't be you shouldn't have to worry about this but of course the technology is what it is and if if that's what it takes then yeah i mean i think in an in an ideal world of course you'd want the camera's algorithm to just figure it out for you and you not have to worry about it and it, it always you know it works every time but i think we're still not at the point where we can trust the software to be that smart or that quick right and so this is just a you know, a stepping stone to that. And there's also the element of control, right? Like a lot of professional photographers just like to manually dial things in because especially in the case of uh, continuous autofocus, it affects how you shoot, right? It's not just a matter of how it's responding to the scene. It, it impacts how you as a photographer are trying to capture that scene. So if there's a particular way that you're more skillful at, you want to be able to tune the algorithm to be in step with you rather than you trying to, you know, figure it out and and follow the algorithm and that there's there's a lot of value in that i see that as as something that especially for photographers is a big selling point that they now have that ability to uh to choose and to customize to actually fit their needs instead of just trusting and hoping and so on yeah yeah but so that's the xt2 and that that's not you know it wasn't announced at the show but it's still a relatively new camera you you still might have some trouble buying one if you're trying to in the stores at least here um, but the main event, and I think what's what's most exciting, is that the long-rumored medium-format camera um, and, and medium-format ecosystem, really, for Fuji is now launched. Yeah, and it's incredible. It's incredible. Fuji like just took everyone by surprise. I mean, people were expecting something, but I don't know that many people were expecting to see this much from Fuji, because not only did they announce a new medium format camera, they also announced six lenses to go with it, which is a lot. Yeah, six freaking lenses. So I'm very excited about it, actually, because it looks like a very usable camera. It's not a monster, which is what medium format cameras traditionally look like. Yeah. And in that sense, well, it is a bit bigger than the other mirrorless medium format camera that's right now in the market, which is the Hasselblad X1D. So in that sense, the Fuji is a little bit thicker, but it still feels basically like a full-frame DSLR in terms of size. It, it's not much bigger than a Canon 5D Mark IV, for example. Yeah, I was watching the uh, I was watching some videos and some initial hands-on stuff with it, and it seems like it would actually be quite comfortable to shoot with. I mean, the grip seems comfortable, and the size does not look. Um, absurd or unwieldy or anything like that which which is great and honestly i'm glad to see that because the the whole notion of uh medium format cameras having to be these big strange awkward things uh you know i think technology is at the point where we can leave that behind and it's nice to see this is not unique to fuji but it's it's just in general nice to see that medium format um as a as a physical object is now becoming a little more practical to use outside of like lockdown studio settings yeah because it used to be prohibitively expensive like it you could if you wanted to add medium format Hasselblad especially a digital one you would have to pay something like $20,000 yeah and and that's really not something the vast majority of photographers out there can afford I was at a, a camera store today to return some rentals and they had an ad up for um, a number of like big discounts on medium format technology and it was like save $10,000. And I was thinking, wow, if I'm saving, if I'm yeah. saving $10,000, <laughs> what is the actual cost? So it was, you know, some phase one system um, and, you know, it could have been mine for the low, low cost of $29,000 after the $10,000 discount. And I was like, 
wow, right. <laughs> this is, you know, no wonder this is a totally <laughs> different realm of, of equipment, right. Than, than we're used to. Um, so yeah, the, you know, Fuji's trying to bring it down a little bit. I think they're, they're trying to make this something that, that we can actually realistically aspire to, uh, per, perhaps use one day. I mean, it's, I think there's, uh, we'll talk a little later about the, uh, the target audience for a product like this, but just as a general concept, the fact that they're managing to, to take this technology and bring it down uh, their, their aim, I think was to, to bring it under 10,000. That was the, the launch price yes. target, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But the the key thing is that that those ten thousand dollars would include the body and one lens, which yes. is the sixty three millimeter f two point eight. Yeah. So that's a pretty sensible pricing for a camera like this. Oh, for sure. And of course, you say technically it is medium format because it's larger than full frame, but as far as medium format goes, it's on the small side, and it's the same thing with the Hasselblad. So these cameras are marketed as medium format, but they're still Just for reference, the traditional, the most popular medium format size is six by four and a half. Yeah. And those are centimeters. That's the size of the sensor. Well, the the size of this new one is 43.8 millimeters for 32.9 millimeters. And that is closer in size to the full frame than to that 645 traditional medium format size. Yeah, but medium format is sort of a is a is a range, right? It's not quite like full frame is is one specific size and APS-C is one specific exactly. size whereas medium format is kind of a category of of anything right. bigger than full frame but smaller than 8x10s and and stuff. Right, like that. but I w- I was this afternoon uh, in a meetup with uh, the Northrop, Sony Northrop and Chelsea Northrop, uh, Matt Granger and then the guys from the Camera Store TV, Jordan and Chris. And Jordan had a very, very, I thought, smart way to describe this camera. He said, this is the APS-C of medium format. Yeah, I like that. And it's true. It's true. Absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, for reference, this this is uh, 1.7 times um, the like, 35 mil full frame, quote unquote, standard. So the funny thing is when you're talking in medium format terms, uh, you know, we're used to multiplying up uh, when we're talking about like lens focal lengths, but here you've got to go the other way around because it's bigger than full frame. So when you're trying to figure right. out the equivalent field of view, it's uh, it's backwards. Um, we should we just sort of run down through the spec sheet though, just as a quick refresher for people who aren't 100% up to date with the uh, with the technical specifications. So Alvaro, you you mentioned it's 43 by eight, sure. uh, 43.8 rather by 32.9 millimeters in terms of sensor size. Uh, there's no anti-aliasing filter. It is a mirrorless camera. And interestingly, because it's a Fuji, I think a lot of people expected that they would use their own X-Trans pixel array, but they did not. It's a standard Bayer pattern. Um, it's got a resolution of 51.4 megapixels. And uh, I think the weight, uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was quoted as 800 grams for the body. I don't which think, is... yeah, I don't think they've released an official statement on that. So that that number, I don't know where it comes from. Yeah. Because the, the, the camera is still not yet it's not finalized. finalized. Yeah. So yeah, so you cannot really say. Yeah. But in any event, it's it's smaller than you might expect for a mirrorless format body. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one, one detail that they've been pretty insistent about, according to uh, DP Review, is that uh, like a lot of people saw the sensor size and they assumed because it's the same size as the one in the Pentax um, and the Hasselblad and stuff like that, that it's actually the same sensor. Uh, but Fuji seems adamant that it's actually an in-house design. It is their own sensor. They're not reusing um, that one. So I guess we have no real way of knowing whether or not that's true, but we can take them at their word and say that it is. Right. 
Um, in which case, great. I mean, it's it's nice that they've uh, that they've followed in that same general size as far as the sensor. That's probably a sweet spot for some geeky reasons that I can't possibly fathom. Um, but the fact that they built their own is is uh, is a good sign. Um, I get the sense that they've been working on this for quite a while. Yeah, me too. Me too. Because you don't wake up one day and say, "I'm going to make a medium format yeah. camera with six lenses." <laughs> yeah. So that's something that I was actually very curious to to learn more about. But yeah, it is. This is. Uh, I mean, how long has this project been in the making at Fuji? Like maybe two, three, four years at least. It must be. Must be because it, it does. I mean, it takes a long time to just for the the research, right? Especially if it's their own developed sensor, like that alone takes a long time to develop and to uh, iterate on and to bring to market. So it's uh, it's crazy. And the fact that they're launching with six lenses is very impressive. I mean, I don't I don't know any other system that launched with quite this kind of lineup, especially in the medium format realm. Right. Um, and it's a sensible collection. I mean, there's uh, there's a 63 millimeter f 2.8, which is the I think it's the quote unquote kit lens. Um, and then there's a 32 to 64 millimeter f 4. There's a 120 millimeter f 4 macro lens. There's a 45 mil f 2.8. There's a 23 mil f 4 and a 110 mil f 2. And three of those are coming, I think, next year they said, or a year after that or something. So it's not like they're all available at launch. But the designs are more or less finalized, and they're they're sort of working on bringing them out ASAP. That 110 millimeter is going to be awesome. I was gonna say, man, that is like because that oh. that's a portrait prime, and the aperture, the depth of field is going to be insane on that one. So it's gonna be like the equivalent of f f point or point seven or something like that. Full. I'm frame not one. sure. I'm not sure which one. What's the what's the factor there? But yeah. So anyway, I, I went to the official press conference when they announced the camera and of course they bragged about everything because that's their job <laughs> obviously yeah. <laughs> but then I unfortunately I wasn't able to actually touch the camera myself uh, I spoke to Peter when when I when I spoke to him yesterday he told me that there are probably only three cameras in the world like three actual working prototypes in the world yeah. one's there at Fotokina another one is in Japan I think and another one I don't remember where he said it was. But yeah, like they are absolutely super guarding it like with with bodyguards basically. <laughs> and uh yeah, I tried but unfortunately I couldn't I couldn't spend some time with it. And and it's a shame because I did have a few questions that uh for example, uh that what you mentioned before Mario is that why did they use a Bayern array, a Bayer pattern for the pixels instead of the X-Trans, right? It, it would have made sense to think that they would have released an X-Trans sensor because that's their their trademark. Yeah, and it would have been another differentiating factor. Yes, of course. And and things like, why so many lenses? Why, why not announce sooner with fewer lenses instead of waiting until you had so many? Because this is a, a very, very ambitious uh, launch project. So I had, I had a few questions but luckily, I was able to talk to Peter again today, uh, and I asked him all of this and more, <laughs> and he was kind enough to give me his personal opinion on the record. Uh, but I would just like to say, to make it very clear, that this is just that, his personal opinion as a person who enjoys photography and who is familiar with the product, but he's not speaking in any official capacity as a Fujifilm employee or anything like that, so everything you're about to hear now 
just take it as, as it is, please. Just what he thinks about it. Uh, but I think there's a lot here uh, interesting and I think it's worth sharing. So what do you think, guys? Should we play it? Let's play it. Okay, so since I already uh, introduced you yesterday, yep. we're just going to jump straight yep. into it. So Peter, the new GFX, that looks like an incredible camera, but I have a few questions about it, mostly about what it means for Fuji as a company and what it means for the industry as a whole. Uh, my first question is a bit technical, it's about the mount itself, it's a new mount, it's not just the X mount bigger or something like that, you guys completely redesigned the mount. And it caught my eye, something caught my eye, which is that it's not uh, stabilized. You guys didn't put uh, in-body image stabilization, like in the X-series cameras. You guys also didn't do that there. You're committed to lens-based optical stabilization. And my question is, is that something that you guys are considering adding down the road? Or is it just not how you look at it? Like, you prefer lens-based stabilization over sensor-based stabilization? I, I think, and first of all, all what we are talking about now is really my personal opinion after what I was reading and talking to other colleagues and other photographers. Because, I mean, as you know, the system is brand new. And still, before the first production model will be out, there's fine-tuning, tweaking, and so on going on. So let's get into that. I mean, from a physics point of view, optimizing uh, image stabilizer on the specific lens is always the, the major solution. Because in the yes. end, we have different lengths of lens, we have different weights inside in terms of glass. So to take go to the X-series for a second, if you take a 100-400 lens and look at the image stabilizer and you take an 18-55 and you look at the image stabilizer, it's like saying a strawberry and a banana are both fruit, <laughs> but that's pretty much it what they have in common. Exactly. You get my point. I don't want to say that the in-body stabilizer would be not a smart thing to have. If it could be combined with the lens, let's say you put an unstabilized lens of a medium focal range length, then you say we are using the in-body one. If a specific lens is mounted where you have a really precisely working lens image stabilizer, this one is used. It would mean having two systems in one. In the end, it's just also a decision where we say we are confident that this solution is better. Not saying that this is the only solution that would be working. But my right. personal feeling is that with Fujifilm, we had a really good experience with the lens stabilized. Uh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And this is why my feeling is that uh, we should probably stick to that. But also here, we will see what the future brings. At the moment, we are talking about six lenses till the end of the last year. And we will see what the future brings. Maybe there's a specific lens where the R&D department might decide it would be smart in a future body to have this or that. But my feeling is we stay to the lens uh, system. Nice. And it's been working very well for you exactly. guys, so it, it, it makes total sense. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about those lenses, because announcing six lenses right from the beginning with the brand new camera, brand new system, strikes me as a very ambitious move. Like, I'm not sure if you'll be uh, familiar with this, but do you think there were plans to announce the camera earlier with fewer lenses, or was it just always the plan to be, until we have a, a full system to announce, we're not gonna sort of spoil it? Also here, being honestly true to you, I don't know. Right. But my feeling is, I mean, if you look at the time it took to develop now the huge array of X lenses, which is five years, if you take from the X-Pro1 to now the X-T2, also people would say, wow, this is amazing having those lenses in five years, but then again, Fujinon did not start uh, did not start um, designing lenses um, five years ago, so we are looking on a long history in terms of lenses for medium format for Hasselblad, etc. PP. You know, the, in the TV section, you have those monster lenses that in, are in every second TV studio on the planet. 
So there's a long, long, long experience in history in, in designing lenses and constructing lenses. Right. So like this, if you would ask me, I would say, in principle, how those lenses should work and behave is something that is already on paper on some blueprints since long time. Yes. And now it was, we have to optimize them and adjust them to this specific new camera mount and the new camera. This is why I would say it's, it was not too ambitious to say we start with six lenses. Yeah, it takes, but it takes uh, some courage because I'm sure you guys could have announced some time ago and the temptation to do that, to announce early is very big, I imagine. But yeah. it takes it takes courage to wait until you have the full system ready to announce. First so of that, all, that and second sense. also, I would say politically speaking, if you allow me to use this term, I think it's smart to show that it's not just an experiment, let's try one and see what happens. You say, no, this is a system that will be a burner on the market. I mean, this you see the reactions here. I mean, everybody says, wow, that's the future camera to use. Right. We will see how the customer will take it. But if you take all into consideration, let's say the way how you operate the camera, the technology inside and the quality of the lenses, I think it's a very competitive system, that's yes. for sure. It looks fantastic, definitely. Uh, tell me a little bit about the sensor, because you guys went with a CMOS sensor this time around. Yes. That means it's a, it's got a Bayer pixel array, not the X-Trans exactly. array that you guys use on the X-Series system. Exactly. Uh, do you know if there's a particular reason that you guys chose uh, CMOS this time around? And here I have to tell you again, very honestly speaking, I can't answer this question why it's not an X-Trans sensor. Okay. The only thing that we know for sure, it's a buyer pattern sensor, but not just a plain buyer pattern. There is some special micro lens design on top of the sensor, which gives it specific features that what you could hear or what you could see on the first sample images would be having a touch and feel uh, very similar or at least the same as good as the X pictures that we know. That's if there will be a future model that will then maybe again have an X trans design on this huge sensor, this I don't know, and we will see. Okay, that's that's anyway. Fair I think enough. at that uh, moment in time. Yeah, I think it's really a nice idea to just wait till the first cameras at hand that a working professional can just rent one, use one, shoot in comparison to other camera systems and then just see would be nice to change something or no, I'm totally happy, then why change a running system? So Yeah, yeah that makes sense. And my last question for today is uh, Fuji hasn't announced a price yet for this camera, uh, but they have said that it will be under $10,000 with a lens included. Exactly. Now, so at the moment, the official statement, if you attended the press conference, it was also clearly mentioned, the body, the 60mm lens and the viewfinder would be, let's say, around $10,000. Right. Which, of course, is an interesting starting point for prices. Huh? Right. My question is, that's significantly more affordable than what I would guess is your main competitor right now, which is the Hasselblad X1D. Yeah. It's the only other mirrorless medium format camera in the market right now. Uh, how big of a competitor do you see them being in the long term? Is that the goal? Is the goal to capture the traditional medium format photography market? Or is, or is the goal to sort of tempt full frame, existing full frame users and APS-C users, why not, to sort of upgrade to a bigger system? I would, for me personally, I would say it's a little bit of both. I mean, I'm shooting X cameras now. I, I'm, I'm shooting X cameras now for a long time, and always I get this question: Where is the full frame Fuji X? Then I always start ex explaining the X trans pattern design, why you don't need full frame on a Fuji X. And the point is, this was very clear. It would make no sense now to show suddenly up with a full frame Fuji X camera. They say no. If the megapixel count in terms of a classic uh, camera is equivalent to full frame, then let's go to the next bigger step immediately, which is medium format. 
So right. like this, I mean, there will be for sure some uh, portray fine art landscape photographers. They just say the 24 megapixel on the X is cool, but it would be just nice to have a little bit more. And then they say it's a affordable system with great lenses. Yes. So let's go just to the Fuji uh, medium format system. And for sure, many, many people that still have old, nice shutter leaf, whatever lenses for medium format at home. Of course. And if they will find a way to use them on the new GFX body, I mean, then it's just bringing together everything. I mean, and it might be possible because the short flange distance certainly exactly. is going to help there. Exactly. In addition, if you check this picture that you have right in front of you here, uh, the, um, the, 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 the electronic pins are a lot of them. And you can really guess if you look, you would probably not need all of them exactly for the Fuji lens. This will right. open up some freedom to say also another lens in the future will be just able to use it on that mount with an adapter or not. Nice. I mean, as you've seen, a uh, size for example, uh, is offering three very nice lenses that work directly on the Fuji X system. Right. So why not having another lens manufacturer who would say, yes, we find this body interesting. Why not bringing out a lens that works exactly on that body? And as we know here, the adapter solutions on the X system work very well. So yes. I, I see no single reason why you would not be able to adapt and more uh, older Hasselblad lens directly on the new body, for example. Absolutely. Absolutely. That would be fantastic. Well, in any case, it looks like a very promising system. I can't wait to try it myself. And yeah, we all do. Um, yeah, yeah. It looks incredible, man. I mean, anyway, I think now it's totally new and lots of things are written. Then you can guess yourself something is more likely to be true or something less likely. Of course. I mean, uh, just wait a few weeks and the official information will be more and more and more. There will be more data sheets coming out. And then I think in the beginning of next year it will be pretty clear really how all the details work and what is expected in the near future. And yeah, I think we have to be a little bit of patience. Fantastic. We'll do that. We'll do that. So thanks again, Peter, for talking to us today. And Most welcome. Take care. And have a nice day. Bye-bye. Well, thanks again to Peter for those answers. They're very candid. Aha. <laughs> uh, we appreciate them. Um, so just to wrap up this this whole medium format style discussion, because there's a lot to digest here, and I, I, I'm sure that we're going to come back to it over the next few weeks as we uh, learn more and things like that. But this is something that Josh and I were talking about earlier today on, on Slack. We were kind of wondering, now that medium format is uh, in the digital realm, is quote unquote accessible, you know, it's within $10,000. This is the kind of thing that professional photographers are able to consider. Uh, who's it for? Like, what? Who who are the photographers for whom a medium format system is going to make more sense than a full frame system or Fuji's X series system? You know, to keep it within the family. Like, Alvaro, you probably have more uh, perspective on this than Josh and I do because we've we've been further away from from this than you. Uh, so, I mean, who who is going to be buying these things? Like, what what is the market like? Well, had you asked me this question a week a week ago, I would have said that it wouldn't change substantially that the kind of people who, who are going to use it because at the end of the day, it's a bulky system. So it's better suited for studio work where the camera is often on a tripod yeah. or where you're not basically not going to move around too much with it. That's what I would have said. But after seeing it in person, this is the size of a Canon 5D basically. So it could conceivably be a system that you could, take with you to an assignment wherever you need to go. I still don't think it's going to be very popular for street photographers, of course, but but there's something here that could be just what some photographers need. It, it, 
it, the camera definitely has appeal right. yeah. to get people to take it out, is, is what I'm trying to, to say. Whether it will succeed, I'm not sure. Because the price is there, it's not the same to take a $1,000 camera out to the streets to shoot than a $10,000 camera. That, that factor is there too. So I'm not sure. But it's definitely opening the window substantially for more people to be able to incorporate it into their shooting style. Right. Yeah, I mean, in my brain, I have this notion of medium format being the the high-end advertising format, right? Like this is the the studio portraiture and the super high-end product photography and the fashion glamour style photographer's tool. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering if the fact that, like you said, this is now becoming a little more portable, a little more uh, flexible perhaps than it used to be, is that going to, like the most obvious door that, uh, it seems like might open to me is medium format uh, landscapes, which were a thing, you know, it's, that's, it's nothing new, but I, I just think that more people might be considering uh, tackling landscapes with a medium format body now that it is that much more practical to carry it around with you. I mean, I think there's still, there's still certain limitations in terms of uh, ISO uh, performance and autofocus and things like that, that would preclude using it in any sort of, action context. I'm not sure that this is going to be uh, changing anything on that front. Uh, I could be wrong, but I, I get the impression that this is not really their focus with the GFX. But There's a problem here, which is that it's not just the size of the camera and the lenses. It's the fact that the type of work that you tend to do on medium format is a work that requires a lot of precision. Right. Like you're, you're trying to create a very specific image and you know exactly what you want to get out of the camera. So for that reason, the usual setup is you have your camera tethered with a cable to a laptop and everything you shoot appears instantly on the laptop screen. And you can review it and adjust your shooting uh, setup accordingly until you're 100% sure you're getting the shot that you need. That's the kind of setup that only makes sense in a studio, of course, because it requires quite a bit of, quite a bit of hardware beyond the camera and the lens. So I think it will continue to be mostly used in that kind of scenario. But there's no doubt in my mind that more people will dare experiment and see where they can take it and how they can make it work beyond that, which is something that so far hasn't happened yet, really. I won't lie. Like The, the reality is that smartphone cameras are becoming better and better and better. So you know that might eliminate a lot of the need for the smaller, casual, everyday camera that you might, you know, tow it in your bag or throw over your your neck as you walk down the street. So with your phone, you, you know, you can snap those kind of photos. So that kind of saves money for for this big stuff. Yeah, there's something to that, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it might it might just erode the center of the market there entirely. It could be, could. I, I mean, I, I was just brainstorming. Like, you know, yesterday I was thinking about all these thousand different camera systems and how I wanted to do this and that, whatever. And like today, the public beta for... Um, iOS 10.1 comes out with that portrait mode for the 7 Plus, and you shoot a photo with that, and bam, like you have that depth of field effect, which like it's fake, it's software based, but like it gives you what the smaller, you know, micro four thirds camera would give you for yeah. a casual shot. So now like that eliminates the need, not eliminates, but sort of eliminates a lot of the need for a smaller portable camera. Um, so yeah, that could save a bunch of people a lot of money. And I wonder how quickly, you know, this will put pressure on the whole market to either move up or move down in price. And I, there's a lot of factors at play here, but 
without a doubt, Alvaro has to be right, that people are going to use medium format in new ways. And I kind of want to be one of those people, but still, it's a little expensive. Just a little expensive. I think what's important, though, is that Fuji has uh, basically broken into a whole new market for them. And we, we haven't really seen a camera manufacturer do this since, I think, I guess the last time Sony did, you know. So that's, you know, that in terms of the magnitude of the news, that's why we were hinting on earlier episodes that this feels like the biggest piece of news, even if this is not the camera or system that you're most excited about. And again, for most people, it's not something that's actually going to be on their radar. But just from a, an industry perspective, it's very exciting to see that in an age where uh, photography is under threat from smartphones and things like that, technology is in flux, there are companies that are still looking to push the envelope and and do so in interesting ways. Uh, and I, I mean, I have, we have no idea what it's going to lead to or anything like that, but it's it's exciting. Mm-hmm.